the table. A place where stories are shared, hearts are open, and relationship is real. This year, a year like no other, we may be sitting in a seat of brokenness, loneliness, emptiness, even a seat of uncertainty. But there's love, hope, joy, and peace found in our Savior who is here. It's so good to be with you guys today in person and online. We always appreciate all of you being here. And as we go through this time together, let's pray and ask God for his help to prepare for his word as we've been doing that through singing. Uh, let's prepare for what he has to tell us today. Lord, we thank you that um, on that, on that uh, holy night, the night Christ was born, you sent your son, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to free us from our prison of sin and guilt, to free us from life of emptiness, fear, anxiety, and to put within us a joy that can only come from you. A joy that is not circumstantial based on the stuff going on in our life on a particular day, but a joy that is positional. It is in you and will always be in you. And so, Father, we pray that wherever we are on our spiritual journey, you would meet us right there today. If we haven't come to know you yet, I pray today's the day that we encounter your son. If we do know Jesus, I pray today's the day when we go farther along in the depth of our walk with him. And so do your work, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So um, if, if you've done any study in church history, you've come across this guy named Augustine. Augustine lived around 350 to 430 AD, and uh, he is viewed as one of the most influential leaders in our church. As the apostles had now died off in 350 and, and, and the church is trying to figure out how this thing works in real life, Augustine was a great theologian and a writer. He was a bishop, actually, of a, of a church in northern Africa, the Bishop of Hippo, he was called. St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. It's interesting that he was such a, an important person in church history because a, a lot of his life, um, Augustine ran from God instead of walked with God. Uh, early in his life, he tried to do everything to fill that void and that dissatisfaction, that emptiness in his soul. He, uh, he was a smart guy, and so he tried uh, intellectualism. Uh, he, uh, he went after fame and fortune, making a lot of money, um, relationships and sex. There was a lot of that in Augustine's past. 
In a, in a book he called The Confessions, The Confessions of St. Augustine, he said that, that, that he had um, been with everyone sexually, but then he found someone he finally could love, but his past had, had, had so warped his, his mind. Here, here's what he said, I wanted only to possess and enjoy the body of that person. I, I veiled the brightness of real love, real love with the hell of unseemly lust. Augustine described this, this dissatisfaction, this emptiness, this void in his heart. He described it as an inward famine. But he didn't even realize, like a lot of people, he didn't realize what he was hungry for. Here's, here's what he wrote. Indeed, I lacked any longing of incorruptible sustenance, not because I had been filled with it, but because I was empty and I loathed it. As a result, check this out, as a result, my soul became feeble and full of sores. That's what an empty soul does, doesn't it? It's weak and, and, and full of sores. This week on social media, I, I asked this question, what are some of the things that people try to stuff into uh, their lives to fill their empty hearts. I got a lot, of, uh, a lot of comments. Let me read just a few. Terry said, spending on unnecessary things. We can always do that, right? We can we think that if we buy this certain thing or get this certain thing, that is going uh, to satisfy us. Andrew said, money, material possessions. We, we know that can be the case. Melissa was interesting. Melissa said, yes, people in our lives who don't have our best interest in mind. It's always interesting to me that people can always find someone to say, yeah, that's what you should do, but they don't always have our best interest. Ashley said, comparing ourselves to others. We all have that problem, don't we? A lot of other people commented, a lot of people mentioned sex and, and pornography, drugs, jealousy, social media, busyness, filling your life with busyness to keep the emptiness away. Spouse, we can do that. Uh, children, food. One, one person summed it up like this. Laura said, anything can take the place of God if you let it in. And that's a true statement, isn't it? Anything can be an idol. Anything can take the place of God. Anything we can bring in to try to fill that emptiness if, if, we, if we let it in. So take your Bibles today and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Today we're going to talk about, as we, consider, as we continue this series at the table, we've talked about the seat of loneliness. We've talked about the seat of brokenness. Today we want to talk about the seat of emptiness. Now for sure, some of you this Christmas is going to have an empty seat at the table, right? Uh, we've had a lot of those who have who have passed away this, this year, 2020. In fact, a, a person so critical to our church, influenced and impacted so many people at our church, uh, was my first uh, administrative assistant and just a great friend when I came here many years ago. Uh, Liz Esway uh, passed away uh, this, this last week on Tuesday. And so we, we miss people we love. And so they're gonna be empty chairs at tables. Some are going to have empty chairs at tables just because it's a crazy year and you, a lot of family can't travel, right? And so empty chairs, physically empty chairs at tables. So that's one aspect of emptiness, but let's talk about another part of that today. Let's talk about the emptiness that takes place within 
our soul. Sitting at this seat of emptiness, not at a, not at a Christmas dinner, but, but, but living in, sitting in, remaining in this seat of emptiness. Or something's gnawing inside. Something's not quite right. Now, if you're not a believer, we want to talk about an encounter with Jesus today who fills up our emptiness. But if you're a believer, wouldn't you agree with me that there are times when we kind of stray away, we become, we become stale, we become stuck, and we're looking for the same things the world looks for to fill up. I know it's crazy because we have Jesus, but we're still looking for other stuff. That's what we want to talk about today. Luke chapter 19. When you look at the life of Jesus, you could divide it into three years. The first year uh, was called his year of inauguration. This is when Jesus uh, uh, came on to the scene. John the Baptist said, there's the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And people started recognizing this man named Jesus turned water into wine there in the Cana wedding. And, and the word about him started to spread. And so his second year is called the year of popularity. Everyone wanted to hear from Jesus. Everyone wanted to see this person who could take some fish and bread and feed 5,000 people. That's why the 5,000 showed up. They wanted to see Jesus. The last year is called the year of opposition. And in the last year, Jesus is making his way to the cross. He says in chapter 18 to his disciples in verse 31, taking the 12, uh, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will what? He will rise. It's always a part of the gospel story. But they didn't understand it yet because these things were hidden from them and they did not grasp what he had said. And so when we get to chapter 19, we read this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Luke wants to make sure we know he was passing through. He's on his way to the cross. This is the time Jesus is on his way to die for our sins in the cross. So here he is in Jericho, about 12 miles from Jerusalem, and he's passing through. Jericho was an important city in the Old Testament. You remember when Joshua uh, went over to the promised land, crossed the Jordan River. God dammed up the Jordan River on either side. Joshua was in the promised land, and Jericho was the first fortified city he had to take. Jericho was this amazing city. It had two rings of walls around it, the most fortified city of Joshua's day, two fortified rings around it. One was 10 feet thick, the other six feet thick. And Joshua said, God, how in the world am I going to take that city? I don't have the manpower for that. And God said, let me show you how. Just march around the city seven days, remember that? And then the seventh day, march seven times and blow the trumpet and the city walls came tumbling down. God promised that that would happen and it did happen. And that was Josh, uh, Jericho in the Old Testament. The ruins were still there. They never rebuilt that, but they built another city about two miles from those ruins. That's where Jesus was in Luke chapter 19. It was Herod's winter palace. It was there. Herod had, had, had sunken gardens, he had beautiful parks, he had all kinds of things for people to do. And here in this beautiful city of Jericho, 12 miles from Jerusalem, Jesus is on his way to the cross and he encounters this man, look at verse two, named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. 
Now, it's interesting, uh, a tax collector, if you were a Jew in the New Testament, just the word tax collector would make your blood boil. A tax collector was a Jew who sided with the Roman government to collect, collect taxes. The Roman government would sell franchises, just like a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A. You could have a tax franchise, and uh, you could uh, be what was called a gabi, and that was a certain type of tax, and then you could be called a mokis, and that was a certain type of import and export and all those types of tax. And a mokis had two types of mokis. There was a little mokis who ran the individual shops, and then there was the great mokis who owned the franchise, maybe more than one franchise. And Zacchaeus was a great mokis. He was a chief tax collector. And he was, Scripture says, very, very wealthy. Now, it's interesting that in verse 3, this wealthy man does something that wealthy people don't normally do. Look at verse 3. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. Just stop there a second. Zacchaeus, who had seemingly, right, had everything, was seeking to see who Jesus was. As Jesus was entering Jericho, Jesus had healed a man who was blind, blind beggar. And that word had been spreading through Jericho. And so Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus was. That's where the Christian life kind of starts, doesn't it? We want to see who Jesus is. And by the way, it's God who works in the heart to get us to do that. And so here we see in verse 3 that God is already working in the heart of Zacchaeus, seeking to see who Jesus was. But the crowd was large. On account of the crowd, he could not because he, Zacchaeus, was small in stature. So verse 4, he ran on ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him for he, Jesus, was about to pass by. Now, you got to stop there because if you're the first reader of the Gospel of Luke, you're saying, hey, time out. Rich people don't run. Rich people, big houses, all kinds of servants, dressed in the most exquisite robe. The world revolves around them. He's in charge of all these franchises. The meeting starts when he gets there. He doesn't run. And he certainly doesn't climb a tree like a 12-year-old boy. That just doesn't happen. He's Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. But it's different when you want to encounter Jesus, isn't it? And so here we're seeing this humility, something going on differently. Zacchaeus, who normally doesn't run, who never climbs a tree, ran ahead, climbed a tree, to see Jesus. And then there's five, fascinating verse. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. Let's just, uh, let's go through this verse. Let's just do Bible study methods here, a little observation on this verse. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus came to, I like the way Luke says this, to the place. What's the place? Place where Zacchaeus is, right? The tree. Jesus always comes to meet you where you are. You never have to go meet him. He comes to you. He comes to your place. He comes to your challenge. He comes to your defeat. 
He even comes to your misplaced joy that you think's making you happy, but it's all circumstantial. Jesus comes to the place. And he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, two things here in that word. First of all, he had never met Zacchaeus before. And so in the Jewish mind, if you knew someone's name before you met them, and that was significant stuff, that demonstrated authority. And so just in mentioning Zacchaeus' name, the Jewish people say, well, time out. How did he know this man's name? That's one thing. We could put another circle around Zacchaeus and make the point that Jesus called him by name. Reminds us of that Jeremiah passage, doesn't it? That says Jesus looks through, or God looks through time and says, you are mine. You belong to me. And so with the name Zacchaeus, we also see intimacy. Jesus knows our name. He knows what's going on in our life. He knows what, what stands behind our name, all our person behind that name. He knew Zacchaeus. And then this is interesting. Jesus says, hurry up and come down for I must stay at your house today. If when you look at those words, hurry up, come down, I must stay at your house today. What, what would be a word that you would use to describe that? How about urgency? When you encounter Jesus, there's something urgent about that. Now, verse six, one of my favorite parts of the story. So Zacchaeus, again, a wealthy person takes their time unless you have this appointment with Jesus. Zacchaeus hurried down and came down, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, this is interesting because in verse, in chapter 18, Jesus had just met with another wealthy young man. He was a rich, young ruler. And when Jesus met with the rich, young ruler, the ruler said, hey, what, what do I have to do to inherit this kingdom that you talk about? And he said, well, um, uh, just keep the commandments. Just do the commandments. And the guy said, well, I've been doing the commandments since I was little. And Jesus said, well, well, really? Well, then take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And remember what the rich ruler did? He walked away from Jesus, and he was sad. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us to sell everything when we become a Christian, Right? but he was just pointing out to this rich young ruler that he had not been keeping the commandments at all. In fact, he didn't even keep the first commandment. Shall have no other gods before me. He had blown that because money was before the living God. And he demonstrated that by walking away sadly. But when Jesus tells Zacchaeus, hey, come down, I want to be with you. What's, what's Zacchaeus? He hurries down and he meets the Lord joyfully. Now, in verse 8, we have a familiar thing. In, uh, verse 7, we have a familiar thing going on. When Jesus goes and meets with sinners, the religious leaders didn't like that, did they? What is he doing meeting with sinners? And so verse 7 says, they, um, when they saw it, they grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Here's what's interesting. Normally, when that happens in Scripture, normally when that happens, it's Jesus then who responds to the religious leaders. It's Jesus who says, hey, the, 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 a well person doesn't need a physician. The sick people do. I, I, I came for the sinners. 
But here it's Zacchaeus who addresses those who are grumbling. And he doesn't do it in an apologetical way, explaining who Jesus is. He does it in a way that demonstrates Jesus has transformed his life. Notice what he says. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, he's not even worried about these other people. He's not worried about comparing himself to others. He's not worrying about impressing them. He speaks directly to the Lord and he says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Man, that's pretty significant stuff, isn't it? Remember the rich young ruler walked away sadly with joy. Zacchaeus says, I'm willing to give up everything for a relationship with you, Jesus. Two parts to this that's so interesting. Last, last week, we talked about repentance. You're walking away from Jesus. You're stale. You're stuck. Maybe you don't know Jesus. And repentance, that word repentance means to turn, to reverse, and go this way. Man, we see that in this verse. But we also see this other critical part of, uh, of repentance. By the way, we think this is a children's story. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, said this is the most dangerous passage in all of Scripture. And here's why. Notice the two things that Zacchaeus does. This is part and parcel for repentance. He stood up and he said, first, behold, Lord... The half of my goods I give to the poor. He had been taking money from the poor, right? He had been defrauding them, extorting them, overcharging them. He had been taking and now he's giving. And so a part of repentance we see is reverse. You reverse what you were doing. You're walking this way, you're doing this thing. It's not the right thing to do. You know it's not the right thing to do. And when we truly repent, there is a reverse where we turn this way. And now instead of taking, we're giving. We reversed our course. But there's another part. This is a hard one. There's another part of repentance here that a lot of people don't like to deal with. That's why a lot of people live with emptiness, even as a believer, not the joy they could have. And that's this part. Zacchaeus says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament, there is what's called the law of restitution. And there are different levels of restitution. But if you stole something and used it. So let's say you stole the sheep and you killed the sheep and ate the sheep and you got caught. You, you couldn't give the eaten sheep back, right? And so the law of restitution said you restored what was stolen four times over. You steal one sheep, you eat it, four sheep back. Zacchaeus on his own puts on himself the burden of the most stringent part of the law of restitution. I'm giving everything, but anyone I have defrauded, 
I'm giving them back fourfold. I'm going to wipe out my wealth, but I don't care because I want to encounter Jesus. And so in repentance, we have reversal and we have this thing called restitution. Let's just talk about what does that mean? What does it mean, restitution? There are a lot of times we, uh, we do something we shouldn't do. We say something we shouldn't say, right? So let's just, let's just start there. We say something we shouldn't say to someone. Uh, Proverbs says, reckless words pierce like a sword. So, man, we, we, we uh, pierced the sword in and, and, and twisted it with our words. Then after we say it, the Holy Spirit lives within us as believers, and so we're convicted of that. And we say, man, Lord, that was a bad thing to do. I shouldn't have done that. I don't want to do that anymore. And we ask forgiveness, right? So that's part of repentance. That's reversal. But what's missing in that? The person who's still reeling from the words and the sword you stuck into them in the morning while you're feeling pretty good about your forgiveness in the afternoon, right? So restitution demands that we go back to that person and we say, man, what I said to you today, I'm not making any excuses. It wasn't because I was tired. It wasn't because of COVID. It wasn't because I was stressed. I sinned against God first and I've asked his forgiveness and I sinned against you and I'm asking your forgiveness. That's restitution. That's why the story of Zacchaeus is so dangerous. We don't like to do that, do we? Put it on a little different plane. I've, uh, I've talked to guys who have blown up their marriage through adultery. And, uh, you know, they, they get caught and they're embarrassed and they're sorry and they ask God to, for forgiveness. And man, a lot of these guys have been living in secret sin and and guilt and shame and so when they when it comes out man it's like a burden has been lifted a lot of guys say I don't even know if I was a believer before that this burden's lifted and now they're look you know now they're forgiven and they're so happy they're forgiven they're in bible studies and they're telling everybody about grace and God's forgiveness and that's cool right except their wife's over here devastated hurt, destroyed, broken. So part of restitution is not going on Facebook and saying how great you're feeling because of God's forgiveness. Part of restitution is going back to your wife and saying, man, I am so sorry. And I know I cannot build your trust at the end of the day or the end of tomorrow, but I will do everything I can to build back the trust that I broke. Fourfold, tenfold. That's real restitution. How many kids, maybe some of you, are sitting here today and a parent did something that devastated you and you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s and you're still devastated by that? I can't tell you how many people I've talked to sitting across in their 50s 
and with tears in their eyes because something their dad did when they were 17 years old. And their dad never circles around and said, man, I'm sorry. I blew that. Will you forgive me? Think about what it does to a person who has been hurt by you. And then you go and you go on with your life and you get remarried and you get your family. And then on Facebook, you're like this great Christmas picture, right? And you're singing the Christmas carols and talking about God's forgiveness and how much Jesus loves you. And then your wife that you hurt still back here saying, really? Is that the way that works? Never came back and circled back with me. I'm still hurting. That's the way it works. Cast me to the side and now you're the evangelists on Facebook. What's that person gonna say? I don't want any, I don't want any part of that. If that's what it means to follow Jesus, I'm not really into that. But what would it mean to that person if you went back and said, I am so sorry, I can't fix it. I can't believe what I did. I can't believe how much I hurt you. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? Jesus has forgiven me by his death on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sin and I sinned against you. I wish I could fix it, but I can't. And I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? Now, what's that person gonna feel like? Man, in Jesus, there's this forgiveness. In Jesus, there's this compassion. In Jesus, there's not just an acceptance of grace, but a, but a pleading for grace. That's why Bonhoeffer said, this is one of the most dangerous passages of scripture. Because we like to after our sin, claim John 1, 9, right? We're good at John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, it's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he is, thank God for that. And part of the restoration process is restitution. And that's what we learned from Zacchaeus. He gave back fourfold to those he had defrauded and hurt. Think about that. You're a poor person and you know this tax collector has defrauded you and you get a knock on the door and he gives you back four times what he cheated you out of. What are you going to say? Man, that Jesus that you encountered, he must be for real. <laughs> that Jesus that you wanted to see and you met and came to your house, he must really transform lives. Maybe tell me more about this Jesus. Because if he can transform your life, maybe he can fill this emptiness in my heart. In verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. Now, Jesus is not saying everyone in Zacchaeus' house is now saved. Everyone has to make that decision on their own, right? 
what Jesus is saying is the fruit of salvation, grace, forgiveness, reversal, restitution, restoration. Now, Zacchaeus' whole house can see that firsthand. And then verse 10, Jesus just sums up the, the purpose of his life. He sums up his why. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came, he said. I just came to seek and save the lost. Jesus knew his identity, didn't he? He knew his purpose. He knew his mission. He knew his destiny. He didn't get distracted. He came to seek and save the lost. So two things. Where are you when it comes to a relationship with Jesus? Can you say for certain that you have trusted in Jesus alone as your personal Lord and Savior? Can you say that with certain, with certainty? No doubt about it. And more than just a card you signed or a time you walked down an aisle, can you say, there, there's been a transformation in my life. Man, I'm far from perfect. But I love Jesus. I want to walk with him. If you can't say that, we'd love to talk with you about that. We'd love to, there's Christmas season. We'd love for you to have Jesus look at you and say, hey, whatever your name is, come down. I want to meet with you. We'd love to, to, to lead you in that, in that encounter. You can uh, text TRUST, T-R-U-S-T, to 31996, and we'll follow up. We'll have a meeting. We'll have a call. We'll have a Zoom meeting. If we stay six feet apart and you wear your mask, I'll even meet with you in person. That was to be a joke, but I guess that's not funny these days, is it? <laughs> if you want to have a conversation, let's do it. But if you're a believer, let me ask you this question. Do you have some stuff to clean up? You have people in your past that are like uh, just laying by the side of the road because of some hurt you've done. Well, part of being a believer, part of that dangerous story of Zacchaeus is he made restitution. So are you going to write that note? Are you going to make that call? Are you going to have that meeting? Are you going to do what it takes to say, man, I am so sorry. I wish I hadn't have done it. I hurt you. I have no excuses. Jesus has forgiven me. I'm asking that you forgive me as well. That's the assignment from the Zacchaeus story. Reflect in your life anything you need to do for true restoration for sin in your life. God forgives you. And he uses your forgiveness to go back and restore relationships and demonstrate to others that when you serve Jesus and really walk with him, this thing's for real, not a hobby. You do the hard stuff, the messy stuff. Ball's in your court. But here's what I know. As we continue Advent, 
and think of emptiness, the only way to turn emptiness into joy is to do the hard work of true repentance. And that's why there are a lot of joyless Christians because it's more of a hobby than a real relationship. We're going to sing this song, uh, Joy to the World. And as Jill reminded us earlier, you know, um, we sing these Christmas carols, cool to sing, but we don't always think through all the words. And so Jill helped us with Oh Holy Night. Let's think about uh, joy to the world. Joy to the world. What's the next phrase? The Lord has come. Has, has he? Has he come into your life? Can you really sing that? Has Jesus come into your life? And if you're a believer, has Jesus really come close within your life? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let me receive my king. He's my king. I want to do what he's called me to do. And then the second stanza, I think it's the second stanza. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Does he? Does he reign in our life? And every day, can we renew that? Lord, you are my king today. I want to serve you as my king. I want to demonstrate, because you reign in my life, I can demonstrate to this world, regardless of circumstances, that joy reigns within me. Father, be with us as we sing this song, as we just let it, let it be sung over us. And I pray that you would do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
Son has come. Jesus Christ came, little baby, and grew up through the years of inauguration and popularity and then opposition and died on the cross for our sins. And because of him, only because of him, we can have joy in our hearts regardless of our circumstances. We can face the most brutal thing in life and still a heart filled with joy because Jesus is there. And we can demonstrate to a watching world what that looks like and what that feels like. And we can demonstrate in real life what it looks like to ask forgiveness from someone we have hurt because that's part of our asking forgiveness from you. So Father, as we go, I pray that we would demonstrate of all people what it looks like, what joy really looks like because Jesus has come and he reigns in our heart. We can we cannot just sing a great Christmas carol, but we can demonstrate joy to the world because of Jesus. Let us go do that this week, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you guys for being here. We appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Song.